it may be hopefully a temporary situation. If it's not temporary, we head for this Singapore on Thames model, where the majority of people are in effect servants for a small group who are well off. And that small group, the best of 10%, will be very divided, but their food will be cooked by other people, their coffee will be cooked, somebody will come and clean their house. They will use different schools to educate their children. They will use a privatised health service. And we will divide into this society of 90% who serve the other 10%. This is the second episode of the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an HRC-funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of people living in ageing blocks of flats in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. My name is Inge Daniels and today I take you to London, where I will speak with Danny Dorling, Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. We will be talking about social and economic inequality, welfare and health in the UK and beyond. I mainly use statistics about the population. So I use numbers that are uh, released by the government to try to work out what is happening, in which direction things are going, is it getting worse or better? Uh, to what extent is the government lying about it? Because one interesting thing, if you do this for, for many, many years, is that governments uh, produce a small press release with data uh, which often has nothing, no resemblance to the data at all. So last week, um, they released an annual poverty report and the minister said things are getting better. And the report actually said things are getting worse. So my kind of job is to look at the data and see what I think is really happening and why is a different story sometimes being told to what is really happening. You've mainly focused on the UK doing that kind of work or have you done it globally as well? Mainly on the UK. Uh, I've done some global mapping and some global work. And the, the most recent project has been on Finland. Because Finland is, if you like, the opposite country to the UK and Europe. It's the one where the statistics show that things are going really well. But the, but the government says, oh, it's not good enough, it's bad. Whereas in Britain, things are going really badly and the government says it's good. For our project, it's interesting because we're comparing these three European countries, so the UK, Romania and Norway. We, we picked Finland, um, very, very similar to Norway, but interesting, over a bit poorer, no oil money. And interestingly, it does slightly better than Norway in various ways, especially in education, where the Norwegians still divide their children the Finns spend more money on the bottom quarter of children uh, than Norwegians. Norway is so rich that everything works out well in Norway, but, but Finland shows how you can do things very well without having to have oil. In the 1970s, the UK was most similar to Sweden. Um, so those Scandinavian countries managed to stay more equal. It's, it's, if you like, the rest of Europe that became more unequal. I looked at your book, uh, The 32 Stops, where you kind of travel on all, through all the stops on the central line, on the London Tube, and then narrate very interesting different issues that the city faces, I think, today. Related to that, I wanted to ask you, what would you say are like unique 
or unusual, interesting things about London that you think our, our listeners might want to know? London is very odd. I think the most important thing to realize about London is that it was the largest city on the planet just over 100 years ago. The center of the largest empire the world has ever known. It's one of Europe's three mega cities. The other two are Moscow and Istanbul. People often don't realize that. The other European cities really are pretty tiny. Paris, Madrid, Berlin in between. And like Moscow and Istanbul, it's, it dominates the country it's in. So Russia is dominated by Moscow. Turkey is dominated by Istanbul and the UK is dominated by London. And of course, they're all centers of former empires. The Ottoman Empire, USSR and the British Empire. Then for, for a mega city, it's very low rise. You know, not that many tower blocks and so on. Very, not very dense. It doesn't have very many monuments. So if you compare it, say, to Rome, you know, it, London doesn't have a Colosseum. Uh, the British kind of spent the money they looted from the rest of the world quietly spread out, you know, around London rather than creating big monuments. I'd say that's, that's something you, you notice. Uh, while reading your book, The 32 Stops, I came across um, one sentence, which is quite related to the kind of fieldwork I've been doing in London. So one of the sites is in Soho or W1, and the other site is in uh, EC1 and 2, which is the city of London and bordering uh, the borough of Islington. So in your book, you say something that was quite interesting, and I quote, uh, inner London has nothing like the urban population of a normal European city. Most people who work in inner London do not live in London. Inner London used to have an incredibly high population, very, very dense, 1880, 1890. Um, rookeries was the name given to the kind of tenement uh, buildings. And it was shabby and it was slum. So a huge amount of it was demolished and rebuilt. And the population of inner London fell from, I don't know, about 1911 continuously through to the 1980s, massive falls. As that kind of population went down and the jobs also went down that people did, financial jobs and similar work to that and say publishing and other things rose um, in the middle of the city. But the people who did those jobs tended to come on the commuter lines from outside uh, to get in. And so you, you create this uh, city over time where a million people come in every morning normally, often looking very grumpy, packed on trains, thinking that they're very badly done by. Uh, and it's the middle class who are on the trains, the underground, the working class use the buses. And it's just not like a normal, normal European city where you, you know, you, you live on the second, third, fourth, fifth, maybe sixth floor. And the first floor is shops and cafes and children go to school and so on. It, it's so different. In a way, sort of quite inhuman. Um, and this was accelerated in the 1980s by the Thatcher government, who quite liked the inhuman way of living. The idea that you, you would live amongst people like you, better off people in the suburbs or even further out of London. And you would come in and work in your office and be paid lots of money and then go back again. Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said if she ever saw a man on a bus, she thought he was a failure. Uh, and then the people who cleaned your office, they could live elsewhere in London, sometimes nearer in, but you didn't have to mix with them. So, so the 80s and the way the 90s, and even the Tony Blair years, 
was a kind of construction of a polarised, separated London where different people lived in their different uh, parts and didn't mix. In the Victorian era, you had the segregation within, say, a house. So you could have servants on the top floor and servants in the basement, and then you were in the middle. The, the modern-day London has a similar kind of segregation, but the servants don't live in and we don't call them servants. But particularly now, it's going to be interesting what happens with COVID and all these buildings here are standing empty. So that's going to be interesting what, whether it will attract more people who actually live here of all kinds of <laughs> background. Well, the people who own the buildings are absolutely desperate to get their profit back. Um, and they, they are very close to the British government. I mean, these are almost the same people. Um, so, and hence Boris Johnson, I think, saying this week, how, how it's time for the holiday to be over and people need to get back to the offices. People often don't have a lot of choice. Every year we, we produce, I don't know, 600, 700,000 school leavers and university leavers who are absolutely desperate for work. Um, well, and of course, their risk from COVID is, is tiny, to be honest, an 18, 21-year-old. So I can see a way in which you'll get people back in these offices. It'll start with the young uh, and then there'll be a point, unless you're senior enough or seen as valuable enough, if you're not willing to come back in, you'll be sacked. Uh, on the other hand, though, uh, London has probably lost a lot of people, maybe half a million, uh, who've lost many because of the pandemic, who've left the UK and gone mostly to mainland Europe. But we're not sure because we don't care that much. We don't actually count it that much. Uh, and one thing I think is very odd, I was talking to a friend earlier about this. After Brexit, after the Boris majority and after COVID, we kind of think there won't be any more disasters. <laughs> there's no reason, um, there's no particularly given how London is, there's no reason why, say, that the banking firm, which is Combust, which is backing the steel mills, could just be the start of many economic disasters to come. We don't know what's going to happen next. So the majority of the people participating in the study live in these blocks built during the 1960s and 70s. They include both uh, social tenants and private renters and owners. So we, we have both of those. So some of the materials I sent you, for example, the two photos. Um, when you look at these photos, could you, for me, just describe the buildings and your first impressions you have while looking at them? They, I think they were, these were former social housing. Uh, but it's odd because in the, in the middle of London, you have the Barbican. So you have, you know, incredibly expensive tower blocks that look, I think, very ugly. But because they're very expensive, people think they're okay. Uh, and, it, and the other thing, it's only from going to other countries. I'll never forget, I think it's being in Prague and looking at a whole series of what, what looked like, to me, very functional social housing tower blocks. When these tower blocks were first built in the 60s and 70s, they were seen as incredible. Uh, you got views, you were elevated above. And also, the people who were first allocated in to actually get to be allowed in, you had to be at the sort of top end of the working class. You had to be well behaved, everything had been going well for you. And there were lots of young families. So, so at first, this was seen as good. But then, you have, as I say, London was still depopulating. So you end up with some empty voids in them. Um, 
then once you allow once you allow the privatization of them it becomes much harder the relationship between leaseholders inside and who owns the freehold and who's maintenance and all of it becomes i think very tricky yes it's interesting you see because both blocks uh, are still the majority social housing social tenants let's see but also what you said about the views and things like that although that was initially a selling point it's still something all the people we have worked with mentioned that that's very unusual to have these vistas as you said it's quite low rise london over london living in these places and I was quite surprised to find majority of people are very happy living in them. The tensions are often with leaseholders. The block in EC1, actually, this is uh, run by Islington Council. It's very bizarre, but only their fire escape was cladded with the same cladding as Grenfell, but only the fire escape, and they only have one. So the first thing they did, they removed that right away. The other block didn't have the dangerous cladding, but so it's obviously this is a big concern. And, and of course, the cladding isn't done for the block. This is a great irony about which the cladding is done for other people's views. Um, and, um, it really, really. So the fire escape will be clad because somebody has said that fire escape looks ugly. But the fire escape only looks ugly because it's a fire escape on a building which doesn't contain rich people. If, if that block could contain rich people we'll be talking about how lovely the fire escape was and it'll be a feature i also included um some of the materials we received from people living in these blocks and so the first thing i sent you was a postcard from andrew who is a leaseholder in this block in soho so basically he answered the question which was um does anything need to be repaired or improved i can i can, I can read it out yeah i've got it here as he says, in our flat, we've had water through the ceiling for some months, once or twice from the neighbour upstairs, but more often it seems from external walkway. Uh, when the wind is in the wrong direction, the rain heavy, who knows? Uh, who knows when it will be fixed? It may be tricky, but still. In our block, the construction site that surrounds us needs to go after five years, exclamation mark. The noise, the dirt, the disruption has been appalling. And then we can redecorate at last, he says. And again, I think this is quite English. Doing building work around other people's homes and not seeing it as a problem, I think has got worse over time and is, is a, a part of being a more brutal country than it used to be. And in other European countries, my impression is people are very much more strict about what can happen, particularly on Sundays. But, but anyway, but in, in, you, know, you, can't, you have to treat people as if they're like you in other countries. Uh, in England, because people aren't like each other, you don't treat them like you're like you. Um, you just drill away. It was really bad in the pandemic when people couldn't get the house in their flats uh, and there were people drilling and, and building around them. It was awful. And then the sort of last point about the rain coming in. <sighs> One British problem with property is just how expensive it is. One of the main aims of government is to try to make house prices in London as high as they can be. And the government don't say this, uh, but whenever it looks like house or rental values will fall, they introduce a new kind of help to buy scheme to make it possible for a few more people to buy at the really high prices because they want the prices to be really high because they see expensive housing as a sign of success. Now, one problem with this is that 
increasingly, again, since the 1980s, it's led to people, you don't fix your housing. That's madness. The money you spend fixing it is wasted because the actual value of the, of the property is largely just the land. And whoever comes in and buys it, they can fix it. And, and so the quality falls over time and the leaks increase and, and so on. You expect if you buy property in England to receive a report from a surveyor telling you how bad it is when you buy it. <laughs> and you might go to the person you're buying it from and say, you know, there's so many things that they fix and they go, we well, don't have to buy it. Somebody else will. Even further in the future, then eventually it's often leads to this quick turnover, destroying a building, building a new one, right? So that, that attitude to things, as opposed to the care you see in, in a normal European city with these the, the, in effect, tenements may be 150 years old, but the idea is that they'll be there for at least another 150 years. And you're constantly seeing the tiniest thing being fixed. You wouldn't put up with water coming through the roof. Uh, but also the soundproofing is really high because, you know, why, would you, why wouldn't you want it to be soundproofed? And the contrast with very strong feelings in the UK as well about preservation of these more historic places. So there is this real tension there. I think that's quite interesting. You're only actually preserving the outer wall. Um, so you, you, you quite often see in London, they, everything behind the outer wall is demolished, but the outer walls are kept up and then you build something new behind. Uh, but also, if we look at what our builders do in London, uh, builders, electricians and plumbers, you can look at where their vans are. And they're located in the most expensive streets in London, where in the past after somebody had had a kitchen for two years, you'd rip it out and for £100,000, you'd build a new, put a new kitchen in. Um, so instead of the builders and the plumbers and electricians fixing property across the capital, they're all concentrated, not all, not all, but the large majority are concentrated doing work for the rich. Mainland Europe doesn't have that idea. You, you don't let that, you'd be stupid. Why would you let that happen? Um, so then the second uh, piece of or material I sent was this letter which we received from one of the residents in the other block, who's called Esther. Yeah, so, so she's saying, this, she's in a 19th floor block, that a few close friends have been ill around her, not necessarily COVID, but a lot of illness. And in the building she sees those people doing addiction, alcohol, drugs, uh, tobacco, which she's less worried about makes her worried about families, relationships, and so on. We had falls in life expectancy in the UK as a whole. Um, life expectancy peaked in 2014, and then it fell 2015, and it didn't rise again until 2019. That was five years later, and then, of course, COVID. It fell because the elderly, particularly when neglected, were stoned in the cuts, and so more elderly people would die early, including people dying in flats like this and they're not being found for weeks. And it's much smaller than the elderly people dying earlier. Uh, a slight increase in the number of people dying in middle age from what's called diseases of despair, um, overdoses, alcohol, and so on. Nothing like the American uh, kind of epidemic of that, but, but worse than other parts, much worse than other parts of Europe. Uh, so, and she says, she goes on to say, However, generic worry 
is what future awaits her children as society seems more and more polarised and the population more controlled. It's odd, it's kind of, it's rational for her because society, the society she's in has become more polarised and possibly could become more polarised again. At some point, what do young people do in a society which treats them uh, like this, which says this is your future? It's, it's a very different future that young people have had in previous generations, when you could look to at least having what your parents had. Um, and when it comes to housing, it, it's utterly shocking. You know, maybe in your 40s, if you meet the right person and you're very, very lucky, you might be able to settle down and have a family if, you've, if you're slightly above average income. Uh, there, there were times probably in the 1880s and so there are certain points in Victorian England which when you couldn't do that as well. But you've got to go a long, a long way back in time. I mean, it's interesting to see with COVID again what some of these problems have uh, become worse, of course. I mean, with the, particularly in this block, um, actually Esther told me as well that what she said what was the most shocking with COVID is that she discovered how many elderly people lived there that she didn't even know lived there. That was very revealing, but she was then very optimistic and seeing the block itself through WhatsApp and these kind of means. And you hear that in other places as well, have come together and are, have been helping the elderly. And for the first time, there was some feeling of neighbors and community in this block. Because I mean, again, it has given lots of people in the block hope because actually they're managed to, um, what they did was not only shopping, but they managed to get Islington Council not to switch off the heating in winter, which they were doing because the elderly couldn't even go out. They were constantly in this room. So it's interesting. Some of these things have changed, but then perhaps that was it. It will return back to normal. Um, yeah, because Islington Council will have a budget problem, a huge budget problem, and the government will pass that budget problem to them because the government the central government want to blame local authorities who don't have the money if people keep accepting when they're told it's their own fault then it will get worse uh, but if, if people begin to realize that it's not their own fault it doesn't happen like this in other places then it's possible for it to get better i'm not completely pessimistic i i just think people can be easily battered by events like Brexit, which can distract them, and a pandemic, which obviously is distracting. And then if you can simply throw more and more things and distract people, that's that's my worry. To try to cause an argument, to stop people talking about really important things that matter in their lives by constantly distracting. for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, edited by Anna Anderson and produced by Jack Soper. If you want to hear more, go to our website at www.disobedientbuildings.com or search for a podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, Gabriela Nicolescu takes you to Bucharest to speak with Stefan Genshulescu editor of Zeppelin magazine and lecturer at Ion Minku University of Architecture and Urbanism in Bucharest. 
How do people in Bucharest view issues surrounding cars, traffic and pollution in their city?